For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile. And the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time. There's Granger, Offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. Do you want to make a podcast? Spotify's got a platform that lets you make one super easily. It's called Spotify for Podcasters. It lets you record and edit podcasts right from your phone or computer. So no matter what your setup is like, you can start creating today. Then you can distribute your podcast to Spotify and everywhere else podcasts are heard. Video podcasts are also available on Spotify. You know I love that, and I promise you the other platforms don't offer that. With Spotify for Podcasters, you can also earn money in a variety of ways, including ads and podcast subscriptions. And best of all, it's totally free with no catch. I've been using Spotify for Podcasters from the very start. I highly recommend you give it a try. Just don't post on Monday. Download the Spotify for Podcasters app or go to www.spotify.com slash podcasters to get started. Welcome, everyone, to Monday Match Analysis. I'm Gil Gross. Hubert Hercotch is a two-time Masters 1000 champion. He wins Shanghai 2023, beats Rublev in a dramatic third-set tiebreak. A lot of great players, like really, really good players, particularly in the Big Three era, have not won two Masters. Tremendous accomplishment for Hubie. We're going to talk kind of big picture, Hercotch's 2023, and where does he stand now. We'll talk specifically about his forehand, about his serve, touch on Andre Rublev, talk about his return of serve. And because I uh, was not doing all that much during Shanghai in the form of content, there are a couple of notes that I've picked up along the way uh, from the week that I want to go over at the end of the show before we wrap things up. But of course, we're going to start with this third set tiebreak. And not only are we going to start with the third set tiebreak, I want to start with the match point. Because uh, I think if we look at the match point first, we uh, are going to pick up on some of the the key patterns and some of the the key reasons why Hercotch ended up winning this uh, very close uh third set tiebreak. Here is the championship point. And uh, we pick it up in the middle. Uh, Rublev hits a big forehand inside in at Hercotch's forehand. Hubie plays some good slice defense here, but Rublev has this point set up very nicely. He's going to be using his forehand and dictating, which is what he wants to do. Uh, and here is a forehand inside out. Hercotch uh, defends on his backhand. Uh, and then Rublev hits another forehand inside out, and Hercotch this time defends with the slice backhand, and then Rublev hits another forehand inside out, and this one's actually really good. Hercotch is 10, 12 feet behind the baseline. He's on the full stretch, open stance, having to defend his backhand yet again, but this is a great neutralizing ball by Hercotch. Stays extremely low cross-court. And as you can see by Rublev's setup here, he no longer has a ball to attack. So Hercotch has successfully neutralized with this backhand cross-court. Now the point is back to even. 
Hercoc can now play his favorite shot. He can redirect because he has a ball to do it. It's another open stance backhand, but this one he takes down the line. It's very, very deep, and Rublev nets the forehand. Hercoc wins Shanghai. But what do we see here? And yeah, there's going to be some nuances to it, but did Rublev kind of forget who he was playing on this championship point? He, in in big moments, I mean, every scouting report across every coach in the world who coaches on tour, uh, in big pressure moments, you make Hercotch hit forehands, and Rublev just pounded his backhand four times in a row and really only went to Hercotch's forehand once in the entire point. He hit, it was, he hit probably uh, six, seven balls to Hercotch's backhand and one to his forehand. It's not really how you want to play big points against Hercotch. And what we saw here was terrific backhand defense by Hubi. Uh, by no means did Rublev play a bad point here. He played a lot of good balls, a lot of good offensive strikes here, but they all went into Hercotch's strength. Hercotch's open stance backhand defense is his most advanced baseline skill by far, and it showed on this championship point. The forehand is not only less solid when he's on the stretch and when he's on the run, but it also comes into a better hitting zone. What really neutralized that point on Hercotch's backhand was how low the ball stayed. It also helped that he got uh, a sharp enough angle on the cross court to get it off of Rublev's forehand and onto his backhand. So that was part of it. But the other part of it was just how low the ball stayed, and that's why, uh, that's why it was a successful neutralization. Flat, not a lot of net clearance. In fact... That open stance backhand, you couldn't see it from the from the screenshots. It actually nicked the top of the net tape, just clipped it just a little bit. I don't think it disrupted Rublev's shot because there was plenty of time for Andre to kind of adjust. Uh, but it just goes to show you how low, especially from such a deep position in the court, uh, it's impressive for, for Hercoc to do that, this. It's actually very Medvedev-esque uh, to be able to get the ball so low. Uh, from this position, I'll show you this screenshot one more time of Hercotch's contact point right here. Hubie does not do that on his forehand. His forehand has more spin. It sits up more. It drops short more often. It's easier to attack and it misses more. So for Rublev to go over and over again into Hercotch's backhand is uh, probably not the ideal pattern, but it is Rublev's default pattern. It is what he does. He does it extremely well. His inside-out forehand into righty backhands, it's how he likes to construct points. If he's playing his default tactics and his default patterns, that's the pattern that he's playing in that spot, and that's what he did. Did he kind of forget who he was playing? A little bit. But the backhand performance as a whole also told the story of this tiebreak. I just showed you the terrific backhand defense on championship point from Hercotch, but uh, there's kind of more to this storyline here, including uh, Rublev going up 5-2 in this tiebreak. And this was really his chance to ice the match. Uh, this is a Hercotch service point. Rublev finds himself in the rally, which is rare with Hercotch's serve and how good it is. It's a very neutral regulation backhand here that Rublev is uh, is slightly early on, it seemed, and he, he pulls it wide of the sideline on a ball that he wasn't even trying to attack. He was just trying to trade it. So 
this is a really, really bad error by Rublev's backhand, and it keeps Hurkacz, at the very least, it keeps him in the tie break. It keeps the advantage for Rublev just one mini break. Now we're going to see where that mini break is ultimately surrendered. This is a second serve from Rublev. It's a very slow, very short second serve. Hurkacz hits a very crisp, offensive backhand return to a very safe target. And it's flat, and it's deep, and it's relatively fast, but it's makeable. It's makeable for Andre, especially because he hit such a weak second serve, he had to know that an assertive return was certainly going to come off the rackets and the strings of, uh, I should say, of Hercotch. But Rublev puts this open stance backhand in the net. And now it's 5-all. We skip ahead to 7-all. We see... Um, Hercotch redirect a nice forehand down the line here. It's very precise. It's right in the corner. But Rublev got there with his legs. He is he very much got there. This is the contact point, you know, and it's an obvious position of defense for, for Rublev. And he's gonna go to the backhand slice to try to make Hercotch play an extra ball here at the very least. Uh, yeah, it's not a great position for Rublev to be in, but you still want to make Hercotch play here, especially because he's not always the best pace generator from the baseline. Uh, Andre's slice defense goes just long. So he was upset with himself. He's not able to make that neutralization. So we have that backhand on forced error, and then we have two balls that I wouldn't say are on forced errors, but they're still errors, and they're still makeable balls on the backhand where, where you know, you just want to... You want to be able to defend those balls if you're Andre, uh, like Hercotch defended on the championship point. And that is why I, I felt just looking at the way a lot of these points played out, these key points in the rallies, and, you know, mind you, when you're playing Hercotch, there aren't that many rallies. And so, you know, how they play out is very key. Uh, for Rublev's backhand, to make those three errors for Hercotch's backhand to hold up on the championship point, I thought was very telling. Here's the breakdown, right? Um, Hercotch had nine service points. Six unreturned serves. Six cheap points. So that leaves three chances for Rublev to win on return because he made the return back in play. And two of them he won with big forehands from the baseline. The one he didn't win was that bad mistake at 5-2, the backhand that he pulled wide. Rublev, 10 service points. He lost three mini breaks in this tie break to lose it. One was the championship point that I showed you with um, the Hercotch backhand defense, the backhand down the line to force the air. The other two were the were the makeable balls defending the backhand. Those were the other two mini breaks uh, that Rublev lost. So I look at how these key rallies played out in the tie break. Common theme is Rublev making backhand errors. And on the match point, Hercotch made those extra balls defending his backhand. The other factor was, of course, the free points. Hercotch, six unreturned serves. Rublev, two. Obvious factor. Uh, but at the end of the day, that's to be expected. And if you're Rublev, the key to coming through is going to be winning 
uh, you know, taking all of your opportunities from the back of the court. He almost did it, right? Rublev almost won the tiebreak. But you can point to, I think, the backhand kind of breaking down as the main reason why he just wasn't quite good enough from the back of the court in order to ultimately win this tiebreak and overcome the advantage that Hercotch had with his serve. But before I talk more about Hercotch's serve, I want to uh, discuss the forehand. Hercotch's weakness. It was not a weakness in this match. It wasn't just decent. It was actually very good. It was actually very good. Hercotch's forehand in the return game that he broke Rublev's serve in the first set, it created five finishes. That's a huge number. Five. The game went to deuce, as you can tell, right? Five finishes means it had to. Um, some of them were defendable balls, once again, that I thought Andre could have maybe gotten um, gotten back and neutralized and couldn't. But uh, that's kind of unheard of for Hubie in a return game to hit a couple of forehand winners, a couple of forehand for forced errors. Uh, in the past, I've begged Hercotch to get to net in order to protect his forehand. I felt that that's pretty much the only way that he can hang is to not play from the baseline. And uh, he didn't have to do that here. He actually didn't come forward all that much in most of Hercotch's big wins against great players, including, you know, you look at some of the, the performances against Medvedev in particular, which is an elite player who he's actually had a lot of success against. It comes down to Hubie getting to the net. Here's one where he didn't have to because his forehand was uh, was actually good enough where he could stay back and still be okay. I saw consistent acceleration. I saw consistent spacing. I maybe saw a little bit more wrist lag on the Hercotch forehand. I saw Hubie getting RPMs on the waist-high forehands. The forehand's below his waist, even, where it's really key to get those heavy RPMs if you're going to make them. Did he figure something out on his forehand permanently, or was it just a hot week? Well, I don't know. I've been seeing signs since Canada. No, I'm not ready to say definitively if it's a permanent thing or if it's just a temporary thing. But let me rewind. Let me look at Hercotch's season as a whole. I had not been impressed. <laughs> for the most part, I had not been impressed. My feeling on Hercotch for most of the year is he's not breaking serve nearly enough. The forehand isn't any better than it's been the last couple years. And it might even be worse to the point where all of his matches are close because he's not breaking serve. In fact... His break rate this year, you have to go back to 2018 before he was even a top 50 player to find a season where Hercotch was breaking as infrequently as he had this year. He has regressed statistically on return. 
And I've sensed that all year where it's like, wow, you're just not breaking at all, are you? And you're not winning from the baseline at all, are you? But he was winning enough of these really, really close matches. Close because he can't break serve. Close because he's still holding serve. Winning enough of those matches to still generate some positive results. Still, you know, week to week to week, come out with some wins. So before this week in Shanghai, this is what his year looked like. He had played 52 matches. Of those 52 matches, 30 of them went to deciding sets. To his credit, excellent record. 19 and 11 in the deciding set matches. In those 52 matches, 50 tie breaks. Decent record. 26 and 24 in the tie breaks. 11 deciding set tie breaks. 7 and 4 in those deciding tie breaks. Which is better than he's been in the past. So, you know, 2022... He was not this clutch, actually. So he did improve the numbers, the you know, the clutch numbers. Um, and that kind of saved his season or had been saving his season. Mind you, 21 total main draws. 21 main draws, 11 deciding tiebreaks. So every other tournament he plays, he's going to find himself in a deciding set tiebreak. That is... A really, really absurd clip. And that's why all year I just haven't had much faith in him. Because I know even if you're playing, you know, 50 in the world, 80 in the world, maybe even 100 in the world, it's still going to be a really, really close match. And that's not the characteristic of a top player. A top player is able to achieve some margin and separate themselves from players that they're supposed to beat unseeded players in the early rounds that they are supposed to beat if they are going to hold seed. And all year long, I felt Hercotch is not creating that separation. He's winning some of these close matches, but he's not creating that, that separation. And it hurt him throughout the year. But starting in Canada, the forehand started to look better from my eyes. And he has the round of 16 in Canada, nearly beats Alcaraz, at least forces him to a third set, goes to Cincinnati, Makes the semifinal. Picks some, some really good wins en route to that semifinal in Cincinnati. Loses to Alcaraz in a pretty great effort yet again. So going into the U.S. Open, I'm feeling pretty good. I'm feeling kind of optimistic that Hercotch, for the first time in a long time, is going to have a good slam, going to go on a good run. I give him an optimistic prediction. And he loses in the second round. But I think he got that U.S. Open disease. <laughs> Not disease, but you know what I mean. The U.S. Open illness, the bug that was going around, it really seemed to, uh, it seemed like Kirkot got it and he lost to Draper in straight sets. But I don't think he was, I think he was, you know, again, a victim of the illness that was going around the locker room. So if you write that off, and now you bring into play this run in Shanghai. He wins the title beating Kokonakis, uh, Yushu, um, Siu Shu, I believe. Uh, Zhang Zhijian, Fabian Morojan, Sebastian Korda, and Andre Rublev.
Now you have kind of a string of tournaments with the U.S. Open as the outlier where her has looked really good. So it looks like potentially Hercotch has made a full rebound in terms of his form. And to me, the improvement is mostly down to his forehand. But the serve is still the driving factor in what makes him good, obviously. So let's talk about that real quick, and we'll dig into some of the numbers in this Rublev final. How good is Hercotch's serve? How good is it really? It's the only Tier 1 serve consistently right now on tour. If I'm making a tier list of servers on the ATP tour, Hercotch is by himself. As long as you take health into a factor. Um, as long as you take health into account, right? If you take health into account, no Isner, no Opelka. Well, okay, Isner retired, no Opelka. Raonic, not really back yet on a consistent capacity. Berrettini, not in the top 50 right now. Nick Kyrgios, Hasn't been active. Who is a week-to-week regular top 50 player right now who's played the full season in 2023 whose serve even measures up to Hercotch's? Closest guy is Bublik. I don't think he's quite there. I think Hercotch, especially if you include the second serve, is in a tier by himself. He is the only tier one server in the top 50. Among top 50 players, he is first in ace rate, 16%. That's 1.9% ahead of second place Bublik. And yes, I think Hercotch's serve is easily better than Zverev's and Medvedev's. Easily. Hercotch is third in hold percentage this year. Behind Djokovic and Tsitsipas. Despite... And I'll back this up statistically, despite being a below average baseliner in the top 50. Average, I'll say this, average to below average from the baseline. How do I know that? Well, he's 35th and he's got a good second serve, Hercotch. But despite having a good second serve, at the very least a solid one, he is 35th out of 50 on second serve points one. Because second serve points are, more often than not, baseline rallies. Hercotch is average to below average in baseline rallies. He's 35th out of 50. There's another stat that I think is illuminating. If you take away aces and double faults, so you are now only including uh, serve points in play, right? You take away aces and double faults. Hercotch becomes 21st in service points one percentage. 21st out of the top 50. Yet he's third in hold percentage. That's how much work those aces are doing. That's how much those aces um, and those cheat points factor in to Hercotch's success and his ability to hold serve. Third and hold percentage behind, behind Djokovic and Tsitsipas. How good was it this week? Well, I mentioned that Hercotch is first in ace rate among top 50 players, 16%. Well, guess what? It was above 20% in 
in four out of his six matches, including the quarterfinal, the semifinal, the final. Unreturned serve, unreturned first serve percentage, which is a better stat than ace rate because it includes, obviously, service winners as well as aces. Unfortunately, I don't get the year-long statistics like I do for ace rate. Uh, 56% versus Marojan. 57% versus Korda. 60% versus Rublev. It's dominant serving. It's a huge week of serving for Hercotch. It is the best serving week that we have seen on tour, maybe all year, other than Bublik in Hala. Dominant from start to finish. So that brings me um, to Rublev, who is not an elite returns in play guy. As you could see, only by a little, but Marjan did better, Korda did better, returns in play, compared to Rublev. Um, Bublik, you know, he served, I mentioned Hala, Bublik served 81% first serves on return against Rublev in the Hala final. Hercotch served 60%. That means Rublev did better, but these are slower conditions than Hala, especially this year. Shanghai was a little bit slower than usual which is backed up statistically, lower, uh, slightly lower first serve points, one percentage for the tournament, slightly lower ace rate for the tournament. So instead of lightning quick, it was like medium fast to medium. Yeah, I'll give it medium fast. At the end of the day, um, fast enough for someone to dominate on their serve and you know put up great ace numbers match after match. Uh, but Rublev against big servers, this is something that I talked about after Hala. I want to reiterate it because I think it's interesting. These matchups have not suited Andre Rublev well. 1-3 versus Isner. 1-2 versus Kyrgios. 2-3 versus Berrettini. 2-3 versus Hercotch. 3-4 versus Struff. You need me to find a winning record against a great server? I can find two. He's 4-1 versus Bublik. He's 3-1 versus FAA. But the full body of work isn't awesome uh, when you look at it. And it's not all that surprising because he does not move back and he does not block returns. Especially against a guy like Hercotch, it can be a really good thing to block returns. Uh, you're not contending with someone like Berrettini who is going to be really, really deadly off of the, the slow balls, that, that slow plus one ball. Uh, Hercotch might not be as deadly. You're going to have a chance to defend. But it's not the way Rublev returns. I actually like Andre's return against servers who allow him to be aggressive or servers who miss some spots. But Hercotch is neither of those. And he was able to dominate with his serve. And this pattern kind of continues. And it's the second big final uh, well, this was bigger, right? Hala's a uh, 500. Uh, it's the second final this year that Rublev has lost where it's been difficult for him to kind of make returns against a, a great server. He kind of did his job from the baseline. I mean, points over nine shots were 16 to nine for Rublev. So in the real extended rallies... 
Five through eight was 19 to 18 when the serve kind of still holds a little bit of influence. But, you know, once you get past nine shots, serve's basically out of the picture. Um, Rublev did have quite an advantage here. 16 to nine, pretty good. So at the end of the day, like if you want me to kind of give a takeaway for, for Rublev, if, if, if you boil this down, it's going to come down to can you make enough returns in play against Hercotch to use your baseline advantage? I mean, it's it's a simplification. It's how this match, it's how a match like this is going to go, right? Like every time, basically. And he just couldn't quite do it. Again, Hercotch certainly had a serving dip start of the second set. And again, Rublev, he got to look at four second serve points in Hercotch's first service game and actually won all four of them. Now, that's a great job by Andre taking advantage of the opportunity that was in front of him. But that is kind of what was required for Rublev to have success. And look, Hercotch is going to serve a, a great percentage usually. And, and he did in this match, especially in the first set where Hercotch was at Hercotch was at 80%, and in the third set, Hubie was at 81%. Look, it's going to be tough to break the best server in the top 50 when he's serving 80% in. It's going to take—look, not a lot of guys would. Don't get me wrong. Not a lot of guys would. But obviously— the greatest returners, they're going to find probably just enough. They're going to find a couple. They might not allow Hercotch to hit six unreturned serves in that tiebreak on nine total service points. A lot of them were great serves. A lot of them were unreturnable. Some of them were returnable. That's kind of how it goes. That's what it boils down to. With Rublev, right, though? I mean, how good is, is your return at a high enough level to make those? And he he wasn't in this match. So even if he built the baseline advantage that he did, uh, because his forehand was awesome, Andre's forehand was awesome, I think Rublev is moving great. I think he's more explosive this year than he's ever been. I think he's put in some work in the in the movement category. He can still work on his defensive racket skills to try to take better advantage of that movement. Uh, but all of those things were were really good for Andre. And the forehand was kind of taking over most of, you know, most of the neutral rallies. It didn't matter. It doesn't matter because not enough returns were going in play. All right. Something to make you feel better if you are a fan of Andre Rublev who held a match point. He got aced on his match point. Rublev also saved a match point at 4-5 in this match with an ace of his own. Um, Andre's won four matches this year, having saved either uh, one match point or multiple match points. That's a lot. So it's been a it's been a year of good fortune when it comes to you know those razor razor thin margin matches for Andre, and this one goes against him. But good week for Rublev. Other Shanghai notes, Korda. Is kind of back to his January form. Three straight semifinal or better results now. Zhuhai, Astana, Shanghai. Beats Medvedev here again, just like he did at the Australian Open. 
with uh, really well-executed variety. And our friends at Tennis IQ actually put together a, a really, really, really awesome metric and graphic on this. All right, check this out, folks. These are um, tracked by by basically an AI. So this is this is ball tracking, you know, computerized, uh, automated uh, statistics being generated that shows Corda's variation. Uh, the first thing I want to highlight is the backhand slice. Twelve point one. Oh, I mean, it's not necessarily backhand. Okay, if he hits a forehand slice, uh, that's also going to factor into this. But obviously, as we know, most of these, the vast, vast, vast majority, are going to be backhands. He goes twelve point one percent slice against Medvedev in this match. His average, his fifty-two week average, is six point one percent. So he's hitting twice as many slices against Medvedev as he normally does. And Korda did this so well at the Australian Open. Really difficult tactic to execute in general, but Korda does it so well against Medvedev. You hit the slice, you make Medvedev move in, you make him move closer, all right? You make him hit up on the ball, you attack with power on the next shot. So it's, I'm going to compromise your position I'm going to make you hit a weaker trade. And then, whether I have the ball on my forehand or my backhand, but for Korda, I think the reason he's so uniquely positioned to do this is because he can hit backhand slice cross court, backhand down the line, and he does that combination better than almost anybody. Um, I mean, he has so much easy power. On the next shot after his slice, it makes him so, so good in that combination. But look at everything else. He hit more short slices. He hit more drop shots. He hit more angles by percentage. Again, this is compared to his 52-week average. And obviously, and this is what everybody's been doing against Medvedev. So, uh, you know, the slice thing is, I think, more unique to Korda because Korda executed that so well, much better than most. But uh, just like a lot of others, he's coming to net more, 17% uh, uh, net shots. So I assume that's volleys and overheads versus on average 6.6%. So boy, I mean, it's like triple four times the amount of net play against Medvedev than he would against an ordinary opponent. So Look, this is what Daniil contends with now, nowadays. Wasn't dealing with this in 2019. Wasn't dealing with this in 2020. For most of 2021, players weren't doing this to him. But in this new era of Daniil Medvedev, and Daniil's playing great. So he's still having a lot of success this year. But guys are just being really, really smart against him. Guys with the skill to do it are playing him very, very tough. So we continue to see that. Other notes this week. Uh, Titi Pass loses to another offensive lefty and Hugo Umber. Uh, Titi Pass now on a three-match losing streak against lefties. And statistical trends point towards a real edge for lefties against Titi Pass. Uh, the career averages, the career records. Stefanos is 23-18 and 18 against lefties tour level in his career. That's a 56% win rate. 
That's like, as you would imagine, 56%. That's a lot worse than Tsitsipas uh, would be against righties, where he is 265 and 120 for a win rate uh, of 69%. Now, Rafa Nadal skews a lot of these righty-lefty statistics because there are less lefties on tour. One of them is one of the greatest ever. You're probably going to lose to him, and that's going to make your lefty win percentage go down, and we need to find a way to account for that to make sure that this is actually a real trend, and it's not just Rafa skewing the data set. So this is what we'll do. Tsitsipas, by the way, 2-7 and seven against Nadal. Let's take Nadal out. Tsitsipas then becomes 21-11 and 11 against non-Nadal lefties. But it's unfair that we are taking Nadal out of the lefty data set, but we're still including guys like Alcaraz and guys like uh, Djokovic in the righty set, right? that are similar to Nadal um, and they are beating Tsitsipas a ton and, you know, they're they're beating Tsitsipas most of the time. We have to try to take those guys out as well. So what I can do here is I can take away top 10 players as a whole and he's never faced a top 10 lefty who's not Nadal. So you take away Nadal, you also take away top 10 righties. See what I'm doing here? Let's just take away the, the top players and see how Tsitsipas does. Stefanos' win percentage is still 9 percentage points lower against non-top 10 lefties compared to non-top 10 righties. And you can't even really tell me, Gil, wouldn't this be true for every one-handed backhand? Wouldn't it be true for every single one-handed backhand? Uh, it's, actually, it's actually not, if you look at it. Uh, team for his career... Higher win percentage against lefties than he does righties. Flat out. Stan, if you take away top 10 opponents, exactly the same win percentage against righties and lefties. So that's, again, countering the Nadal skew. Federer, better against lefties than righties if you take away top 10 opponents. So it's not really just a one-hander thing. It's kind of more of a Tsitsipas thing. Now, I will admit, sample size is dangerously low. It's still kind of a, a lower sample size than you would want to make a very, very staunch and, you know, hard line uh, conclusion based on what we've seen for Tsitsipas. But obviously things aren't going well for Steph, and that continues. I do think a lefty like Humbert, who's offensive, similar to Stricker at the U.S. Open, poses some really extra difficulties for Tsitsipas and the weaker backhand return. Humbert, 9-9 nine and nine against Top 10 opposition before he lost to Rublev. Now he's 9 and 10, but he was 500 against top 10 players for his career. He is 84 and 89 ATP level against 11 and above. That is extremely abnormal. Umber continues to kind of be a player who flashes tons of talent when he when he plays top guys. I mean, and that that's why I picked him to go on a big run and uh Rublev played great against him. Phenomenal. Great return of serve, actually, against Umber in that um in that quarterfinal. And I want to end with someone who has a similar thing going on who I want to mention. It's not quite a Hugo Umber situation, but 
you can see some parallels, and it's over a, a much smaller sample size than what we've seen from Umber. But uh, Fabian Morojan is having somewhat of a paradoxical season. He's up to nine career ATP wins now. But within those nine wins are a win over number one in the world, number nine in the world, and number 11 in the world. He beat Dimonor and Rude this week, quarterfinal in Shanghai. So seven out of his 19 ATP wins have come at Masters 1000 tournaments just from Rome and Shanghai. Seven of his nine. This is basically unheard of. It has traditionally been the most difficult format to win in. Hardest main draws to qualify for. That is no longer the case. Now it's probably ATP 500s. But for a guy to have see all of his early career success at the Masters 1000 level is, is really, really bizarre. It's easier to do it at majors. When you have the big draw, you know, easier to qualify, more likely that you're playing lower-ranked players early. I mean, it's kind of wild what Marojan has done. And it's obviously hard to get a read on him just from his results alone. But, you know, it's a really fun game to watch. Uh, super easy power and the drop shot frequency is uh, was not just an Alcaraz thing, right? He wasn't doing that just because he was playing Alcaraz in Rome. He does that to everybody, and it's pretty phenomenal. I think we're going to figure out how good Marojan is or can be next season. Right now, it's still pretty hard to tell. And uh, I'll end by just flashing up the race. Um couple of weeks left, few weeks left until Turin. And you have, I think, five players qualified. You have Rublev center. Wait, no. I think you have four players. Four players qualified. Uh, Rublev is basically a lock, however. Um, pretty much everybody playing this week. So it's an important week. Hard to predict these things. But I'm kind of thinking... Unless Hercotch keeps up the hot serving and makes a run in Paris, I kind of think Fritz gets in. I give Taylor the upper hand over Runa and Rude. I don't see Tsitsipas missing. I don't see Zverev missing, even though uh, Zverev just lost first round in Tokyo to Jordan Thompson. I see both of those guys uh, getting in. Um, and hopefully... This race um, for the the number eight spot, and I don't know, you know, who knows? Maybe even the number seven spot is up for grabs. Maybe it won't go to Zverev or Tsitsipas. Uh, hoping this race is more exciting and comes with more success from the top players uh, compared to the race for the U.S. Open four seed. Congratulations to Hubie for winning Shanghai. Congratulations to his fans. Hope you enjoyed. Don't forget to subscribe, and I'll see you next time. Our house is a mess. Come on in. I'm Amber Wallen, internet comedian, plant queen, and host of your new favorite podcast, Fly on the Wild. Okay, that's pretty <laughs> presumptuous to assume that this is going to be their favorite podcast, by the way. Like, come on, Amber. Anyway, that wasp that you just heard interrupt me is my husband. And co-host, Benjamin Wallen, also a comedian, and I host people at our home. I have a great wine collection in my cellar. Well, you it's mean not a cellar. the mini fridge. It's a mini fridge. It's a mini yeah. fridge. New episodes of Fly on the Wallen drop every Wednesday. Listen in as we discuss relationships, books, and keeping our sweet baby kid alive while we make laughs on the internet. Subscribe to Fly on the Wallen wherever you get your podcasts. Yes.